Are you a hybrid athlete who wants to learn more about how to combine your strength and endurance training? Well, I've written a new book, The Science of Hybrid Training. In this book, I provide insight into the misconceptions surrounding strength and endurance training by distilling the past 50 years of research and drawing on the conversations I had with great scientists, coaches, and athletes on the Progress Theory podcast. This book is essential reading for hybrid athletes and coaches who are looking to understand the key training variables and their effect on the simultaneous development of strength and endurance performance. Get your copy now, available to buy from Amazon. Now, let's get into the show. Hello and welcome to The Progress Theory, where we discuss how to implement scientific principles for optimizing human performance. I am Dr. Phil Price, and on today's episode, we're joined by SNC and sprint coach David Sadkin. Now, there's a reason why the 100-meter sprint final at every Olympic Games is one of the highlights. It's such an awesome spectacle to see the fastest athletes in the world reach speeds that only a handful of athletes will ever reach. However, sprinting is much more than just running as fast as possible. It takes a perfect blend of physical qualities, competitive drive and technique in order for us to reach our sprint potential. So how do we train for this? Well, in this episode, David and I discuss variations in sprint technique. We discuss David's coaching philosophy when working with sprinters. And we discuss common mistakes sprinters often make when training to try and get faster. As always, please follow The Progress Theory on Instagram, YouTube, or your podcast app of choice. And while you're there, please check out all of our other content. Here is David Sadkin. David, how are we? Very well, very well. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad. Thank you so much for coming on The Progress Theory. I wanted to talk about sprinting for quite some time now, and I was thinking who to get on. And I remember like when we've met at St. Mary's, your passion for sprinting has been there from like day one. Uh, and I always follow your Instagram content. And what I love about it, there's always purpose to it. So it isn't like a lot of Instagram as where they, they have like an exercise and they explain what the exercise does. Yours always come across like, okay, this is the exercise. This is what we're trying to achieve. This is the context we're putting it in. So you, you have you understand why you've used these exercises because you understand the goal that you're trying to achieve. Uh, I think that's something that's quite rare on social media. So my instinct was, okay, I want to talk about sprinting. Let's get you on and allow you to elaborate a little bit more on what you're trying to achieve with your sprinters. Yeah, no, I mean, the Instagram thing, I kind of saw, I wouldn't say a gap because I mean, social media is <laughs> flooded with <laughs> information. Yeah, yeah. But I saw that, yeah, it was either one or the other. It was either very, very scientific and people couldn't really get their head around it or mm. it was almost too basic and people just putting fuddy-duddy nonsense on there. So I thought, well, you know, I, I coach guys every day. I thought, let me just start putting it on there. And I thought, well, let me just give an exercise, give a brief rationale as to what it is, what you should do and what you shouldn't do and how to execute it. And then give a very brief description of, of what it is that you're doing and why you would do it to help yourself mm. in sprinting. And I just found that started going quite well. And that, 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 that's kind of the premise of where that was, was born from. I just thought not many people know the why. And mm. that, that's, that's going to be the kind of key theme throughout probably this conversation is, when I first started, it was you do things because you think it might work or you've seen someone do it and you kind of trial yeah. and error. And the more you do, you, you understand actually you need to know why you're doing exercise. So why are you doing that eight skip? Everyone does an eight skip, but why are you doing it? Mm. Like, what's the point? And I just thought if you could just to educate people now, I'm not 
I don't profess to be a, a lecturer or a teacher or an educator in any way, but I just think it's good to give my perspective. And if people want to listen and they learn something, then great. If they don't, then they don't have to click the like button. <laughs> no, I, th- I think it's great. And I think you're absolutely right regarding the context behind it and like why the goals. I think that's so important. And it stops people just trying things for the sake of it. I mean, a lot of the time when you try something new, like a new exercise, you know, it's not going to likely not going to cause an injury. But if you do trial and error over and over again with a load of stuff, sometimes you're just doing work for the sake of doing work. If you have a clear rationale behind everything that you're including it, then it's likely like the program is going to improve the athlete. So having someone like you that is providing content, which is so detailed in, well, it's detailed into how it's explaining, how it's improving the athlete, why you've included it, but it's also basic enough for people to really understand it and start understanding the rationale as to why you've used it and how well if they're using this to try and get this adaptation i lack these particular qualities maybe i can start incorporating these exercises or variations of these exercises to get similar qualities and let's see how that improves my movement sprinting or whatever it might be so no i think it's i think it's absolutely brilliant so watching your stuff has made me think about sort of my physical qualities i think like i've taking it from a longer distance running perspective but there are still some crossovers between someone that's trying to improve a 5k run versus someone that's trying to get faster in a 100 meter sprint you know there's there are similar qualities and it's definitely allowed me to sort of question my programming so mate thank you thank you so much i'm learning so much so i appreciate it how did you get into sprinting was it something a sport you did as a teenager no it's um I kind of fell into it by by chance, to be honest. I mean, I used to be, I said football, I was half decent level playing football and um, snapped ACL twice. So kind of never, couldn't really get back into that. And I just went mm. down to my local track to um, get back fit to go to try to get back into, into um, football and just ended up falling in love with running, to be honest. The coach there was just phenomenal in terms of making you love the sport. Mm. And I just started doing it and realised actually I was quite quick always been quite quick in football. So I started doing that and then quickly realised I wasn't as quick as I thought I was when you come <laughs> up against these track guys. You realise actually they're, they're a lot faster. But then it must have been about, about a year or two into training that particular group, like starting to do it. And that was around 18, about 18 years old. I got an opportunity to go and train with, at the time was the Great Britain Relay, to go and be a training partner for some of the guys there. So even though I wasn't quite on the same level as them, it was to go there and try and help them with their road to London 2012. Mm. And it kind of opened my eyes to the world of elite sport and what it would take, training alongside and doing everything that those guys were doing. So getting a real insight into what it was every day. So I went from training two days a week to twice a day, six days a week. So it's a bit of a big (laughs) jump up, but it was really good getting that thorough understanding. And at the time, the coach, I think he knew before I did that it wasn't going to be for me. And so I always tried to kind of educate me around the sort of the, the things that we were doing. And I always used to question. So I always used to like to know why we were doing certain exercises and mm. what was the purpose of doing it. So I was, early on, I developed the kind of eye and wanted to know why we were doing. And then from, from that is what kind of led me into the coaching side of things. So then that, that was about 2000 and 2014. I stopped running. I realized it wasn't meant to be. And that was when I was kind of at a crossroads of where am I going to go now? And 
didn't really know how to get into elite sport. I didn't have any professional education as such. I wasn't really sure what to do. So luckily, it's about who you know. And my coach managed to hook me up with a, they call it an externship. So it's like a, it's more of a work placement as opposed to an internship. You actually Mm. work there. Yeah. Makes sense. And it was at Michael Johnson Performance out in Texas. I remember you talking about this. Which was, yeah, which was a really great experience. I went there for 12 weeks, got to work with NFL players, MLB, ball riders, baseball, like all the different sports you can think of. I mean, it was an awesome, awesome opportunity. And it really opened my eyes into what it takes to develop speed because the city itself wasn't designed for footballers or for basketball players. It was designed for athletes to make them faster, to make them fitter, to make them stronger. So it's all aspects of speed development. And that's what kind of really then opened my eye to, oh yeah, this is what I want to do. And did that came back to England and then realized, even though I had experience in the practical side of things, in order to get a job, you needed the theory also. And that's why I then decided to go to St. Mary's and start my undergraduate degree hmm. at the age of 25. When I, when I did that, I thought I was old. Not as old as I am now. But huh. So yeah, at age 25, I went to, went to St. Mary's, did the SNC course. Alongside, went to America, did all my coaching badges, did my UK badges, did every course I could kind of get my hands on, I mean, FMS, mostly the wire balance, level one, level two, did pretty much everything I could. Then following the undergraduate, did the postgraduate at St. Mary's also, which I never thought I would do. And then alongside that is where I kind of gained my experience in coaching. So originally I started out as a kind of an assistant coach for a well-known coach who's based in England, working with you know, Olympians, world champions, et cetera, which was a really great experience. I did that for a year. And then I got an opportunity with one athlete who was moving to London to go take him full-time on a program to see, see if we could do this. And it turned out to be a very good first year. I don't know if it was fluke or not, but <laughs> it turned out to be a very good year. He managed to get into his first senior championships. And then following year, obviously, COVID happened. But that's kind of the journey I took. So quite a late bloomer in terms of education but a lot of practical along the way mm. i mean i know you said oh when we went to st mary's and i felt a bit old at 25 but in my head i'm like that's almost like a perfect time to head to learn your theory because you've just spent what that would have been about six seven years from maybe from when you were 18 yeah, pretty much delving that, into yeah. it, the practical side whether you were as an athlete or questioning as a coach and obviously you went over to texas and that like, so you had all this space before you came to learn the deeper things of the theory. Like you're so far ahead of everyone else that was that was on the course. That's the best time to learn, really. You also take full advantage of the course because you know why you're there. It's like Definitely. I'm already working in what I want to do, but I just want to know the finer details of the science behind what I'm doing to help me with my decision making. So you've had a, a wicked experience and such a... Well, I love how it's varied, but I love how the story goes from your competing and training alongside top athletes to the point where just before covid you were coaching an athlete that had really good achievements there's a really nice Mm. sort of story thread through that Uh, so i think it's absolutely wicked so when it comes to you're working with a sprinter right what kind of key things are you looking for when it comes to like sprint technique obviously there's a lot more to okay just run as fast as possible from like a technique wise are there like key cues or key body positions shapes that you really you really look for yeah so of course we have what ideal looks like and what Mm. we would like everyone to look like you know we want everyone to look like a sulfur (laughs) power of course 
But in, I, in the real world, everybody's different. So for me, it's, it's very individualized. Hmm. So I look at each athlete differently. The, first, the, the, the kind of first thing that comes to my mind when I look is, yes, I want to see key positions, but I want to know the history first. So for me, there's that, there's that old kind of chestnut with Michael Johnson, for example. People say, oh, you know, he's too upright, I need to change his technique. However, oh. there may well have been like underlying kinematics that meant he couldn't run in a different way. And if you change that, he possibly would have got worse. He may have got mm. better, he may have got worse. So it's kind of juggling that. So for me, I like to look at, well, if it doesn't look how I want it to look, but they're getting better and they're not getting hurt, then I'm going to leave that alone. Mm. I'll come back to that at a later date when I need to squeeze a little bit more out. However, if somebody's getting hurt or we've hit a crossroads, then I'm going to start manipulating what they look like. But that's the first kind of point of call I do because it's, it's quite easy to straight away say, oh, look, they're kicking out the back. Mm. That's something we need to fix that. Well, yes, but there might be a reason why they're doing that. So let's think about why that's happening first. Have you got an example where someone has done something that might be not against the status quo of what the technical model is kind of seen as, but something that was, you know, you're Michael Johnson. They were running a little bit different than what's considered normal. And you thought, actually, let's see how this plays out. Yes, I mean, a good example of that would be like... I guess Shelley and Fraser Price, for example, you know, there's a lot of athletes that have quite a, a lordotic curve, say, in their lower back. Now, straight away, people will be like, oh, we need to address that. That's an issue. You know, they're, too, they're too anteriorly tilted. However, mm. you know, if you understand the why of mutation, force closure, form closure, that might actually be a strategy for them to stabilize the SIJ and give them more spring-like qualities to make them run faster. So actually, for example, if you see someone with a lordotic curve, rather than straight away thinking we need to fix that and bring them back more posteriorly, that mm. could well inhibit them and make them run slower or put more of an injury risk into that individual. So again, it's kind of understanding the person before you, you jump to the conclusion. Has there been any examples where you have made some changes? So if we talk about this excessive lumbar curve, has there been any examples where actually we did change the kinematics? And what, what was the reason why you made the decision actually we think we can actually change this and we think it will be better for your sprinting? Oh, yes. Um, a massive one was, so with an individual I've been coaching now for a few years, he came to me very, very talented. However, had had excessive backside mechanics, you know, to the point where he's almost kicking himself in his lower back. Now, again, if he wasn't getting hurt, then he might, might think something else. However, he, he's pulled his hamstring off the bone a few centimetres. He's repeatedly pulled hamstrings, pulled hamstrings, pulled hamstrings. Oh, wow. So I was like, well, for me... I go and get them checked. So I work in a bit of a triad team. I have a physio, I have an osteo, I have a mentor, and I bounce ideas with everyone, and they see him, and we kind of interlink that way. Now, everything else was strong. Hamstrings were strong. So straight away, it's like, well, so it's not the hamstrings that's the issue, you know, it's, it's, it's the movement. So then that led me to think, well, we need to change the way he's running. So that was definitely a massive red flag there. So teaching him to stop going out the back and bring it up in front and pull his leg through was a massive one. And then we quickly realised actually he had no hip flexors, <laughs> pretty much. Oh, really? He's running on his hamstrings and it's just all going out the back, yeah. Genetically talented, you know, mm. as a junior, you, you know, you just run when you're a kid, you just, you know, think about huh. what you're doing. And yeah. so that was very good, but it's also a downfall. So we had to change, change that and work on kind of the whole system as such. So we really had to work on that anterior chain to get him to be able to produce the force or the torque around the hip to bring the leg up in front rather than just mm. leaving it lagging out the back. Mm. 
Would you be able to explain what frontside and backside mechanics are, just for any listeners that may be familiar with those terms? Yeah, so essentially, I'm including the title, kind of. I mean, backside mechanics is when your foot kind of touches down behind your centre of mass or your foot's coming out behind you. Frontside is what you would traditionally call a high knee. So we tend to want to see more backside mechanics in acceleration to help with the thrust down the track to get you up to speed. And as you come out of that transition, you want to stop having that behind you and stop getting it in front of you so you can start opening up that stride length, which is a key determinant to running fast. Yeah. Is there sometimes, with your example, you described how someone was spending way too much out back. It's almost like they're flinging their limbs right out back. It's another issue you often see. Uh, people have too much front side mechanics to the point where the, the cue of, okay, we need to get the knees higher, high knees maybe have a negative effect on that particular athlete because they're just trying to get their knees higher and higher and it just makes no sense. It doesn't help with their uh, running stride. It's almost like an exaggerated knee lift, if you know what I mean. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, high knees, I don't really, I mean, we do cue the high knees, but it's more, you know, that's where your wicket runs and things are going to come into practice. Mm. You want to, you want them to feel it coming higher without them necessarily thinking about it coming higher you know like straight away if you put someone through a wickets they're gonna they're gonna run almost with perfect technique which is the, the joys of running with wickets but yeah you do see that some people run with excessive high knees and then i mean if they're doing that you're not going to get the stretch reflex on the on the psoas or the hip flexors so you're actually going to inhibit yourself and you're going to cut your stride length and rely more on your, on, on your frequency so it's, it's not going to be beneficial for you to rely on the high knees but yes i have seen that and i would say that's probably a kind of a common mistake in sprinting or like a myth along with keeping your head down when you drive out the blocks is high knees like yes they have high knees but it's a result of what's happening within the gate as opposed to actually just thinking about running with your knees up high do you prefer using obstacles like mini wickets as a way of teaching proper knee drive mechanics rather than using cues because you can then the athlete may misinterpret what you're trying to achieve if you know what i mean yeah it, it depends again it depends on, on the individual some respond very well to just information mm. others need to just be put into that position so it kind of depends on what type of learner they are but i do find with me personally it tends to be yeah, putting the object down will do it because i can keep telling them cue them to like get your foot off the floor as quick as you can don't mm. spend long on the floor as soon as it gets behind you pull it back up in front you know you can give all this information but when you're running fast your brain's going so quick anyway, it's quite hard to start processing information. So if you, if you put the obstacle there, you know, it, it just forces them into that, into that technique, which clears it up quite nicely. So doing contrast training with that type of um, modality is um, I find very useful. Mm. However, I don't, I don't use mini hurdles. <laughs> I use oh, really? cones or sticks. Yeah, oh, just because okay. I've seen accidents happen with the mini hurdles. Um, really? I mean, a lot of coaches do lose it and there's nothing against it, but I've seen people trip um, over the hurdles, so I'm not really a, a fan. Those, those mini hurdles seem quite small and flimsy. Is it when, when you're running at such a certain speed, like the tripping hazard is magnified? Yeah, so it depends on what it is you're trying to get out of the wickets. That's the other thing. So is your athlete overstriding and do you want them to focus on stride frequency? When you're going to bring them in, it's probably going to be a bit easier for them to get over them. Mm. If your athlete's spinning like Sonic and you want them to elongate the stride, then we're going to have to move it out slightly. And all of a sudden, if they can't quite reach it and they're landing on it and flicking it, then it starts becoming a problem. So it kind of depends on what you're trying to achieve. So for me, I like the cones because I can elongate it to a point where, okay, I know I want you at least 2.4 meters, 
roughly for an elite yeah. male. If you don't make it, what's getting scenarios is you're going to stand on a cone of a stick or you can just run off to the side. So the hurdles is bit, can be a bit intimidating as you, as you run towards it. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen any sort of really bad situations where it's like, oh, okay, I've just seen someone stack it doing the hurdles i'm not gonna i'm gonna avoid that in the future or that's exactly that's exactly what happened it's <laughs> <laughs> exactly what happened so i saw um it must have got about full about 20 meters into it and then they clicked one and then it the way it flicked up it got caught between their legs so then it, they just stacked it went over and tumbled and obviously when you're running at a fast speed it's yeah a bit dangerous you know so yeah, yeah just for certainly. that I, just, I mean i mean coaches around the world have used it for decades and they're fine with it however just for me any way I can mitigate any possibility of something happening, I'd rather do that. No, certainly. Especially if they've got like a meat coming up. Let's just, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whatever it takes to get the same stimulus, but without exactly. with minimal risk. And you'll also find, even just by putting a stick there, as opposed to a mini hurdle, they'll yeah. still do the height. Like the height of the apparatus, to be honest, isn't so much an issue, particularly when you're running fast through wickets. If you're doing okay. short to yeah. do like high knees or teaching a switch, then it's yeah. slightly different. But otherwise... Yeah, yeah, yeah of course. Difference. With the use of the cones, I know you talked about certain key terms there regarding step frequency and st- uh, stride length. So one is the turnover of the feet and how often you do it, and the other one is the amount of ground you're kind of covering with each stride. What kind of, how would the athlete move for you to think, okay, we need to improve your stride length, or actually athlete b we need to improve your stride frequency what what kind of things makes you think okay we're going to work on this with this athlete and work on the other thing with another athlete so testing is one way of doing it i don't have i'm not blessed to have up to jump and all the crazy gadgets however we do have a, a camera phone and they're pretty pretty useful now so what i tend to do is set up 10 meters to see the first 10 meters that blocks and then i'll do a flying 10 meter side on as well and I'll just get a measure of their stride length and stride frequency. That would be one, one thing I'll look at. So we have the actual figures of what is their stride length, what is their stride frequency. Then I will compare that to, well, I can't remember off the top of my head, I think it's 1.75, I could be wrong, times their trochanter length that gives you their kind of optimum stride length. Then I'll compare it to that of where they kind of need to be. Then I will look at the technique and see, well, can they elongate that or can they not? And then I'll then match that up against another checklist of, Say, for example, this athlete's meant to have an optimum stride length of around 2.45. However, he's only running around 2.3. But I know he's strong in the gym. I know he can produce the vertical force. Mm. And so I know he can produce the stride length, but he's not doing it. Then I will then think, okay, let's try and elongate that. Whereas I have another athlete who their stride length is meant to be around 2.5, 2.45, and they're at 2.3. But I'm looking at the technique thinking, hmm, looks like doesn't look that comfortable and i look at their gym numbers and think mm, they're, they're not quite strong enough then i'll just leave it there mm. so it kind of depends on the individual okay what software do you use to get those numbers canovia oh, you can use canovia. yeah 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 well, <laughs> yeah we'll we'll put canovia in the in the show notes so people can yeah. go and download it and sort of play with it there's another kinematic software called tracker which we've also been using at the university right. all good and that's it's great to see because you know that's something that someone can download for free it isn't something that you have to purchase a membership for because they can all really add up right. so I, I think that's what i also think how cool that is that is is that you're taking testing data you're getting objective measurements but you're still using those objective measurements based on how the athlete's moving as well so it's a combination yeah. of 
quantitative uh, data and qualitative data, so how they move, and you're using them together to form a decision of what to make rather than go, well, this says this, so I'm going to do this. Like it, it's, yeah, and I think that's very, I think that's very important. Because, yeah, sorry, just because a lot of the time when we look at social media, not so much, but it's quite easy to go online. You know, you get 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 Usain Bolt's data or the top ten people from the World Championships and say if somebody who runs sub ten has an average dry length of two point four meters. Therefore, this you need to be able to do that. Hmm. Well, yes and no. <laughs> it's not not quite as simple as that. So again, it comes back to understanding the why and understanding yeah. the individual as well. Yeah. Have you seen that quite a lot where people have used like elite, elite objective data and they go, okay, right, we need you to get you to this. And then the training doesn't really work because they're applying the training to a level that isn't there. You know, they're, uh, they're sub-elite. They need training for a sub-elite athlete rather than an elite athlete. Yeah. I have seen that with wicket runs in particular. They'll set the wickets up based upon sort of figures that they've learned. And you can just see the athlete, the, the technique is terrible. <laughs> so they might be making the wickets, but they're applying zero force. So that's the other thing that they have to understand. It's not about just what you look like. You know, it's what that, the stopwatch never lies in <laughs> track and field. So it doesn't matter what you, to a certain extent, it doesn't really matter what you look like. It's about what that time says. So it's all well and good running over 2.4 meters, for example, yeah. but... If it's slow, then it's a waste of time. You're not helping that individual. Yeah, yeah, certainly. What's your strength and conditioning philosophy towards uh, training sprinters? I know that's quite a broad question, but do you, what kind of strength and conditioning work do you predominantly do with your sprinters? Because I know it's going to be a mix between stuff you do in the weight room, stuff you do on the track. Is there a kind of like general overview approach that you use and then you make tweaks to it to make it individual to that athlete? Yeah, so it's definitely evolved from when I first started. When I first started, I was very tentative in the sense of I was all about trying to limit injury as much as possible, borderline being too cautious. Common mistake you all, you see often is people just trying to lift the world or lift as much as they can in the gym because they've seen someone do it. But again, why are you doing that? So for me, it, it, it kind of it starts with what does science say around 100 metres? If we're talking straight ball sprinters, what does the science say? Well, we know that some studies say up to eight times body weight goes through, goes through the individual when they're sprinting. So we know we've got to put a lot of force through them. Then we think, okay, well, what's the key determinant to running fast? It's vertical force. Okay, so we need to overcome gravity and produce vertical force. We know we need to lift a lot of weight, i.e. why you see sprinters do those quarter squats, which a lot of people hate. But there is rationale as to why they do that. So I'm understanding the science of why you do that exercise and how that relates to sprinting. And then I work very closely with an osteo who treats the athletes and will tell me what that individual may well feel like or what he, what's lacking, etc. And then I also work with a physio who does the same thing but provides the rehab and then the guidance. Then what I do is I take the rehab from what they give me, then I take the information from the actual therapist, then I look at the science behind sprinting and then I put my interpretation on the kind of all of those and put mm -hmm. it together and make an individualized plan. And that's kind of my overall philosophy into how, how I do it. And then that will then break down into, well, this individual is very good out of blocks. This individual is very good at upright running, but he's not very good out of blocks. So then we can start manipulating in the weight room. Well, okay, we know we need to work 
on you. We need more ductor magnus work to help bring bring that deep flexion, get out of that deep flexion in the block position. Okay, so for you, we're going to go you know slightly lighter with the weight, but we're going to go heavy step up in terms of a big box. We're going to go big box, not too heavy on the weight, but we get real deep hip flexion. Whereas you're not too bad out of blocks, but your your your, your stance fades in upright. You know, you, you lack a little bit of stability when we're upright running. So for you, we can go a lot shallower, but we're going to load that weight up so we really work on the glute knee, glute max to work stabilize that hip. So it'd be depending again on the individual, that will then differ between each person also. So there's kind of this whole brainstorm like that comes together for each person, and and that's how I kind of write my my SSE program. Mm. Are there common mistakes you often see with people doing SNC for sprinters? So you kind of touched on it. Uh, earlier regarding oh people just trying to get as strong as possible and clearly load is important you talked about how around eight times body weight goes through the body so then you might choose certain exercises like the quarter squat just to really get that loading in so there's like good application of heavy loading but there's probably a lot of other poor application of heavy loading and can be completely misdirected if you know what i mean what kind yeah. of yeah? What kind of common mistakes do you often? So that would be, I mean, like, like I just touched on, lifting ridiculously heavy without an understanding of why, and just doing the same kind of lifting for a long time and not understanding the periodization of the weight room has to has to happen one and two has to be in sync with what it is you're actually working on in a track. So there's no point you working on acceleration in your in your in your sprint training where you're doing heavy, repeated, fast, short sprints. Then in the gym you're doing all your light. Airy fairy stuff. It's not. It's not going to. It's not going to translate. It's not going to work together. So that that'll be one thing. Doing the right exercise at the right time of the year to ensure you're getting the right adaptation of what it is you're actually trying to achieve would be mm. one. And then two would be, I tend to see they do again exercises that they see on social media or somebody who'd run fast does it. So then they will do it. That would mm. be one. And then the execution of the exercise. So again, yes, we want to lift heavy. Of course we do. You know. It's about the manipulation of the sets, the reps, the tempo, the volume, the frequency, you know, all the, the training principles of how you get that adaptation. I don't quite think some people understand that, that the intent has to be there regardless of it's heavy, doing slow, heavy stuff. Yes, we, we do that, but there needs to be intent into that heavy, heavy weight, if that makes sense. Yeah, 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 definitely. It almost makes it, it makes no point doing it. You're just going to get fatigue for the sake of being fatigued if you haven't got that exactly ability to i mean ultimately running fast you're producing force very quickly whatever the yeah. load is that's been applied it's all about developing force quickly so if you're not doing that in the weight room how are you going to develop that for the on the track well yeah very good well it's not a myth but that's a very good good point is you know the force velocity curve is awesome i mean everybody kind of works roughly off of that continuum and mm. it makes complete sense however yeah, when you, you can't look at that solely in the force velocity curve when we're looking at sprinting because someone who's running at 12 meters per second is producing a lot of force <laughs> very quickly. So yeah. actually, you know, you can't look solely on that. And then that's when that kind of understanding why or how certain muscles do things can help influence the exercise prescription and that the way you do the exercise. Mm. So I'm quite fortunate that I have a very good mentor who helps me understand the why a lot better than I, than I did. As an example, you know, like if we know that running at less than seven meters per second, it's all about your, your calves and your quads, yeah. predominantly your soleus. So we know that soleus is predominantly a force strength muscle. Therefore, training that fast isn't going to have as much bang for its buck versus the gastroc is a more of a fast muscle. So 
when we're doing gastric stuff, you might be get more bang for your buck doing a slightly faster tempo, as an example. Okay. Or within the ha- and same thing within the hamstrings, you know, like of course you can manipulate knee versus hip dominant exercises, but we know that bicep femoris is speed and a strength muscle, whereas semitendinosus is more um, just a speed muscle and semimembranous is more a force muscle. So understanding the muscle, understanding the, the kind of architecture, I know it's quite deep and you don't really need to go into that depth, but it's something that my mentors kind of brought to light to me lately and really helped influence my programming is understanding the kind of tendon slack and how these muscles operate. Then you can start understanding how you can get the best out of that muscle, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I always feel that that's one of the most important things of truly understanding why you're selecting certain exercises is the ability of muscles and tendons to coincide with each other to develop that force. Like you've got muscles that, yeah, they act really quickly, but due to the fact you're spending hardly any time on the ground, they almost act isometrically and they need to act isometrically to allow the tendons to actually do their thing where they elongate store elastic energy to then be released if you don't really understand that relationship and how that can change based on different muscles because of their position uh, relative to the skeleton then that surely will make it very difficult to have or choose certain exercises because you don't understand the anatomical uh, relationship between certain structures definitely and also understanding that the weight room it does play a part throughout the whole 100 metres, but predominantly lifting heavy in the gym is for your first kind of 10 metres. That's your weight room strength. You know, yeah. as you start transitioning, that's where we're going into, you know, your SEC and your, your non-contractile tissue and your elastic strength. That's when that becomes king. So your kind of weight room only going to be pertinent to kind of your initial acceleration to get you up to speed. Once you're up to speed, doing the heavy squats and stuff, that's more of a maintenance. That's when you need to start thinking about, you know, your plyometrics, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. Do you find people do too much of that heavy stuff? It's almost like they're overly focused on the top 10 or the the 10 meters. Uh, And the only reason I say that is I know there were some reports of people coming back from the initial lockdown and running PBs. And a lot of people were saying, well, it's because they reduced the amount of real heavy work that they were doing. They were focusing more on plyometrics and ballistic work because that's all they had available to them and all of a sudden they kind of took the heavy stuff that they did before and over time with the use of extensive plyometrics and ballistics it gave them the time to be a bit more fresh and develop the qualities that was gonna make them faster because ultimately if you're running 100 meters the first 10 meters is such a small bit of it yeah I, I, i definitely agree there's definitely something something in that um people do focus a lot on on the weight room. I mean, I, I, I like to branch out and listen and mm. to a lot of the kind of collegiate coaches and people out in America, um, what they do with their athletes and quite a lot of the common theme tends to be like elastic strength is king over okay. the weight room. Yeah. So a lot of bounding, like running into bounds, straight leg bounds, etc. They tend to do a lot of contrast training with that, with weighted vests and then non-weighted vests, etc. They do still lift heavy, but again, it, it falls into that periodized plan. Like there's a there's a time and a place for it, of course. You have to do it, but all year round, possibly not. But again, everybody's <laughs> different, and each to their own, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> would you go back over to America to continue sprint coaching? I mean, I would. I, I guess my. A goal, not necessarily the goal, but a goal would be to potentially get a job at an NCAA institute. I would quite mm. like that. I know it's very hard 
to get into. <laughs> I'm assuming it's very competitive over in America, let alone. Yeah, very competitive. Brits coming over to like. <laughs> yeah, I think it's quite much a, a, a thing of who you know, and also being. I see quite a lot of the time to get into some of the good schools. You kind of have to have had a lot of experience or be a very good athlete yourself. Mm. Yeah. To like finish off, we've got a few young coaches that want to get into sprint coaching. What would your recommendations be for them? I guess don't just look at one coach and think, even though they may have coached the fastest person there is. I mean, I was at MJP and got to learn kind of all of Clyde Hart's philosophy. So I took what I liked and then I left what I didn't like. And then I, you know, I looked at, you know, your, your Dan Path and Kelsey mm. Gilbert and all these other all these other coaches and you kind of pick what you like and then create your own philosophy moving forward and it's kind of a trial and error in that sense so i'd say don't get bogged down into one person because that's one way of doing it and we know that i mean if we compare for example what we compare what usain bolt does versus what justin gatlin does versus what michael johnson did you know they all have slightly different approaches some might be the short to long approach some might be the short approach some might be normally power orientated the other one might work more for the strength and then come down to the speed so um mm. It's about getting a, a broad understanding of all the different kind of approaches you can you can do and then see which one fits with kind of your philosophy and what you believe will work and then try it with the athlete. And again, it depends on what type of athlete they are. You might have an extremely talented athlete, but if you imply the wrong approach, it's not, it's not going to work for that athlete. So I would just say, yeah, don't get bogged down with just one individual, really broaden your horizon watch a lot of videos, really try and understand the kind of key determinants, key, mm. the key like, messages within sprinting. What is it that makes someone fast? Really understand the basics before you start thinking about all the, the icing on top of the cake. Really think about how do you build that cake first mm. and then you can go from there. Yeah. Aside from yourself and your Instagram account, are there any other resources that you'd recommend people to follow? Because, you know, along with what you were saying, you know, follow many people. Who should, who should, who would be a good starting point? YouTube. <laughs> Just type in things in YouTube. Um, anything okay. you want to you yep. understand, that would be one. For me, I always go on, it's called the USTFCCA website. And every year they have like a symposium of all the top collegiate coaches of the year and they all put okay. up um, PDFs of their PowerPoints of what it is. Ah. So you can go on and you can search and someone might put, energetics for 800 meter running next person might be lower limb power in shot put and it'll be all these different presentations so then you can start getting an idea of what do these people do which is which is quite good and it's free which is always nice yeah wicked oh, i'm definitely going to check that out and i'll i'll put that on the show notes as well david that was incredible we always end the episode asking this particular question if you could choose a guest to be on the progress theory who would you choose and it doesn't necessarily have to be within sprinting. It could be anything. But uh, it's always interesting to see who people would have as a guest on, on a podcast. Somebody like Jürgen Klopp or like Alex Ferguson would be good. Because, yep. I mean, they're kind of the best managers ever in the mm. world. So I'm sure you could learn a lot, a lot from them of how to manage, how mm, to manage yeah. people and get the best from people. I think like, they would be, they'd be pretty cool. Yeah. And so important when working with sprinters. Definitely, yeah. Because, you know, the actual... The coaching, yes, I mean, the actual session, what you give them, it's only a very small piece of the, of the jigsaw, you know. It's, you, to get the best out of people, it's not just what you write down on a track. It's, you know, it's how you communicate, how you educate them around like, what they do sleep-wise, food-wise, 
don't go out partying, you know, all this, all the basics, hydration. So there's a lot more to it than just simply just writing sessions. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, that's a really good message to sort of kind of finish up on. And a very common message with other coaches we've had on the progress theory. They just show how important is the other 23 hours of the day. So you could have the best program in the world, but if you're getting five hours sleep, it doesn't mean shit. <laughs> Like you just won't, yeah, you won't sure. have the intent like you were describing earlier regarding the intent of the exercise if you haven't got the intent to the overall session like it's yeah it's nothing so mate, david that was awesome thank you very much and where can people follow you on on social media yeah so the best thing is instagram it's the only thing i'm kind of active on in terms of posting i have twitter same name david sadkin i just follow people i don't i don't tweet anything so yeah instagram is, is where chicken. it's at Right. Listeners, yeah. definitely check out that Instagram. It's helped me a lot with my ideas around running in particular. So I definitely think it would help you, whether you're an athlete or if you're a coach as well. So David, thank you very much. Hopefully we'll see you soon. Take care. Thank you. Thank you, David, for coming on to The Progress Theory and talking about his experience within the SNC community and his work with his sprint athletes. He has a great story of an injured athlete who fell in love with a new sport and wanted to know everything about it, and it has led him to become an incredibly successful sprint coach. Now, as always, I just wanted to provide some final thoughts on key areas which really stood out to me. Firstly, I really enjoyed hearing how open his approach to both coaching sprinting and S&C was. He isn't constricted to a certain way of doing things. He knows every sprinter requires different training to ensure they progress, so he tries to understand them as an athlete before making a decision on what training they require. He doesn't try to fit them into his way of doing things. He fits his own ideas based on the athlete themselves. And secondly, he clearly works well within a system for his athletes. His training and coaching decisions come from discussions with the osteopath and physio that he works with, his understanding of the science around the determinants of sprint performance, and his own ideas. Again, it is this openness and adaptability to his coaching that allows him to utilize all of the information available and ultimately make the right training program. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed this episode and it sparked your interest in sprinting. I truly believe learning about sprinting transfers so well into other areas of human performance, so this has really created some ideas for me to reflect on. If you enjoyed the episode, it would be great if you could leave us a review and share this episode on your Insta story. Feed that algorithm to help grow the show. We will see you in the next one. Thank you.